Hi, I'm Imran Ahmed, and I'm pleased to share with you the Inside Fashion series, where I interview leading fashion designers from the fashion world. In this next Inside Fashion interview, I speak with the American fashion designer Tommy Hilfiger, going inside his American dream. But his dream wasn't without its ups and downs. Tommy had lots of problems and challenges along the way in building his business, and he was very open about sharing them with me, which makes this next conversation all the more valuable. Just keep in mind this conversation was recorded for video purposes, so please do excuse any audio issues. Um, I, I wanted to spend some time talking about your career. It's been 30 years now since you launched your business. So let's go back yeah. to Elmira, okay. New York, where you grew up and where you set up your first fashion business. Um, I, I was curious to hear about kind of what motivated a young man living in a small upstate New York town. Uh, what motivated you to think that fashion or you know, starting a fashion business even back then was the right path for you? I think it, it was by mistake in a way. Yeah. Because I had no idea that I would ever go into the fashion business. Yeah. I was too small to play on the basketball team at school, <laughs> too small and frail to play on the football team. And in the mid to late 60s, I became obsessed with music. Yeah. The Beatles came to America, the Rolling Stones, the Who, Led Zeppelin, Hendrix, and all of the sort of supergroups of the time were very influential. There was a fashion music revolution taking place with Woodstock, and I wanted to be very much a part of that scene. So because I couldn't really play an instrument, I decided to look like a rock star. Right. And I had long hair and wore bell bottoms and cool clothes. And most of the students at my school were dressing in preppy clothes and very normal sort of classics. But they all wanted to look like me because it was like, you know, sort of a rebellion against parents because the parents hated long hair. They hated seeing like mod hippie type clothing on their children. And at that time, I, I decided to take $150 I had saved from working nights in a gas station, buy 20 pairs of jeans from the streets of New York City, bell-bottom jeans, and sell them to my friends. Okay. So I opened a shop called People's Place. Okay. Painted it black and played music, burned incense and candles and sold cool, really cool clothes. But this was like way before the internet and way before kind of mass media. I mean, how did you, because I've never been to Elmira, obviously, but like how did you kind of figure out what was cool and like translate that into this, this retail store? It was all about what the musicians were wearing. Okay. That was cool. I mean, yeah. seeing Jimi Hendrix and seeing the Stones and the Beatles and the Who and all of these groups dress in such incredible ways. I really wanted to be part of that whole world. So I wanted to feature that type of clothing in my stores. Yeah. So I searched New York City for the type of clothing I, I, I needed to put in my stores. Mm -hmm. And I would go to like obscure boutiques in, on the Lower East Side and before Soho was Soho and the East Village. And I would find really cool items, sometimes vintage items, and bring them back up to Elmira, New York, which is a college town. Okay. And I sold them to like 
cool young people. Right. But along the way, I was thinking, wait, I think if I were to add a pocket or embellish these jeans or change the design, I would have a better product. Okay. So I started designing on my own. Right. And having these items made for my store and then stores subsequently. People loved what I was doing. And while I was doing that, it was, it was so much fun. Right. I thought, well, designing clothes is something that, that I never thought of. You weren't trained as a fashion no, designer. No, no, not at all. So how, how, did you, how did you teach yourself, basically, how to design and, and kind of put together a, a garment? And there's a lot of technical you know, skill that goes into designing. I knew coming up with the ideas and sketching them was my forte. That, that was fun, that was inspiring, it was interesting. And I knew that I would never be able to cut a pattern and sew these garments together. Right. I would make a mess out of them. Right. So I hired local people to work for me. Mm-hmm. And I guided them. And as I was doing that, I was thinking, I, I should build my own brand. And it was my dream at that time in the 70s to build my own brand. But I didn't really know exactly how to do it. And at one point in time, I said, I'm I'm just doing it. So I moved to New York City. I sold my stores. But wait, before you get into that, there was the the stores grew very quickly. they They grew very quickly. I opened jean boutiques on college campuses throughout New York State. Right. On the Cornell campus, Cortland... Auburn, uh, Corning, New York, Lake George, New York. We opened a lot of stores. Right. I had a couple of high school friends who were partners. And we overexpanded. And we had a bankruptcy, which was like a master's degree in business for me because I realized we knew nothing about business. And at that point in time, I figured that in order to build a brand and to become successful, you really should understand business. Right. So I taught myself business. And I toiled over reading a balance sheet and looking at the bank statements and d- really doing primitive math trying to figure out uh, how to become profitable. And I, and I figured out that you, know, you have to sell more than you're spending. <laughs> and it was quite simple and right. it, at the end, but it was, uh, it was difficult for me to grasp this idea of having to be a designer and a businessman. Right. But I had no choice. Right. So I forced myself into it. So then, you know, you moved to New York City after yeah. having this like humbling thing and I imagine that's like a really difficult thing to go through and you're designing as a freelancer and you're you're kind of working with some of these big 7th Avenue brands. Tell me about that experience and what 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 that was like. Well, it was very difficult to get a job without having gone to design school. So I basically knocked on doors and showed people my work and begged people to to hire me. Mm -hmm. And this jeans company called Jordash had one jean that was like the jean in 1979. And I convinced them that they should do a whole collection. I said, look, in order to expand your business, you need a whole collection. I could design a collection for you. So I did, and they paid me, but then they fired me. Why did they fire you? They said, we don't need a collection. We have one gene that is the basis of our entire company and our entire brand. We really don't need it, so we don't need you. So I went to another company called Bonjour Jeans, sort of a 
70s designer jean vehicle. And the same thing happened. I went to work for them. I designed a collection for them. They didn't even want to look at it. They said, no, we, you know, we, we have two or three jeans that are really the basis of the business. We don't need anything else. So I met an Indian gentleman mm -hmm. by the name of Munabeg. And he told me at a factory in India. And I said, well, I would love to go to India and I would love to design clothing in India because I, I think the fabrics are really cool and I've seen other brands do that. So he said, well, why don't you come to my factory? So I went to Bombay. First time? First time, mm -hmm. which was an eye-opener. Yeah. It was incredible. I fell in love with India, Indian people, the culture, and I spent a lot of time there designing my first real collection under my own name, which was really not my own name. I named it Tommy Hill. So then I was fortunate enough to meet uh, another Indian gentleman called Mohan Rajani. Yes. And Mohan at the time had Gloria Vanderbilt, which was a big, big mm -hmm. jeans company. And he saw something in me, I think, that was maybe unusual. He saw that I was really driven to become successful. But at the same time, he, he thought that it shouldn't be called Tommy Hill. It shouldn't be called 20th century. It should be called Tommy Hilfiger. And I said, are you sure you want to call it Tommy Hilfiger? Because if, if we call it Tommy Hilfiger, do people really know how to pronounce that name? And he said, Tommy, do you think people know how to pronounce Yves Saint Laurent? <laughs> and I said, no, that's uh, a very good point. And he said, so what would you design? And I said, well, I would design for myself. So we created Tommy Hilfiger in 1985. So that was 30 years ago. 30 years ago. And that was really the beginning of all of this, you yes. know, where we sit today. How did you know Mr. Murjani was the right business partner? It's, you know, it's something that um, a lot of designers think about as their businesses are growing. Obviously, you know, some things don't change in fashion. And whenever, you know, money men see a talent, you know, they, they you go and proposition them. And one of the questions I get asked a lot by young designers is like, well, how do I know who the right investor or the right partner is? What was it about Mr. Murjani that, that made you feel like, okay, this is, this is a good one? So when I met Mohan, it was like we'd known each other for years. Mm -hmm. And he felt the same way. And by the way, we both feel the same way today. We're right. both very close and connected. But when we met each other, it was just like a meeting of the minds, and we knew that we would do well together. So when he offered me the opportunity to have my own brand with him, I, I jumped at it. And then I went to the Calvin Klein people and told them that I was not going to take the job because I was going into business for myself. Right. But that was a hard thing to do because getting a Calvin Klein job was like a major dream. Right. And I was quite enamored with Calvin and, and the company. They were the company at the time in, in the early 80s. And I thought, I will really learn a lot from Calvin and the company and then someday start my own. But when this opportunity came about, I couldn't refuse it. So we went into business in 1985. There's a story that um, it's now almost like fashion lore about this hangman Campaign. advertisement this campaign that you put up. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that happened? It was shortly after you set up the business with Mr. Morjani. That's right. 
And, you know, it really puts you on the map, I think. Yeah. Well, it was very interesting because we were in our first year of business and we were talking about doing some sort of advertising and we didn't have a lot of money to do it and certainly we were so new he wasn't going to fund a big advertising campaign. So I was thinking we should take these incredible young cool models out to the Hamptons on the beach and photograph them in my cool casual clothes. And I had it all sort of worked out in my mind that they would be on sand dunes and they would be uh, barefoot and the shirts untucked and just, you know, this really cool vibe. And Marjani came into my office, my studio one day, and he said, look, I met this advertising guy by the name of George Lois. We need a meeting with him. He's coming in this afternoon. So I met George Lois, and George Lois, big guy, and he said, so tell me about this company. And I said, well, we're, you know, really going to compete against Calvin Klein, Ralph Lauren, Perry Ellis. Uh, We sort of had this preppy, casual, cool line, and I showed him. I said, I'd really like to do an advertising campaign with models on, on the beach. And he said, no, 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 you can't do that. And I said, well, what, what would you do? And he said, give me 24 hours. Right. So he came back in 24 hours with these big boards and he showed me pictures of Calvin, Ralph, Perry Ellis with X's drawn through them and said, these guys are done, now it's Tommy Hilfiger. I said, there's no way, you can't, you can't do that. I would never do that. And he said, okay, well, I've got another idea. So he brought the other idea out, and the other idea was comparing me to the other designers, or comparing the other designers to me, and you would have to fill in the blanks of their names. So I said, I I can't do that either. That's, you know, obnoxious, and I just can't can't do that. I want to go back to Mm -hmm. photographing the models on the beach. And he said, I've got another board to show you. So he pulled out another board, and it was photographs of the Armani campaign, the Gianfranco Ferre campaign, the Versace campaign, the Calvin campaign, the Ralph campaign, with the names taken off the ads. And this is when Bruce Weber was shooting a lot of these campaigns. And they all looked the same. They all looked the same. He said you could put anyone's name on anyone. And this is when Calvin was using horses in his ad, ads. And Ralph, of course, was Polo by Ralph Lauren. So there, 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 were, there were so many similarities. And I said, no, you're right about that. And he said, look, it would take you millions of dollars and many, many years to become known. So if, you're, if you want your name to become known, we should do something unique and do something out of the box. I was shaking because I thought, this, this is going to ruin me because Mohan Rajanu said, no, we have to do this. It would be a great idea to do. And Joel Horowitz said, no, we should do it. We should do it. So I was torn. Finally, I agreed to do the Hangman campaign. And when it launched, I was really nervous. And the next day was the first and only day I thought of leaving the business. Right. Because it caused such a stir with fashion people and people basically trashing me and becoming so incensed. It was all over the news, all over the newspapers, all over the television news. Who does he think he is? 
He couldn't hold a candle to these guys. Right. They've been in business many years. He, didn't, he never went to design school. He doesn't know. But people came into my store on Columbus Avenue. They came into Bloomingdale's, Macy's, Saks, and all the other stores. And the clothes started selling. So it worked. It worked. And I take my hat off to George Lois and Mohan Rajani for, I think, first George for creating the campaign and Mohan and Joel for coercing me into doing it. But so, ultimately, I mean, it was your decision and it was a pretty ballsy decision. It was, it was a frightening decision. And, yeah. and after all of the fashion flock decided they should bury me in the sand, I decided that I had to just work very hard to create clothes that would be relevant. So I really focused hard on every detail. Mm -hmm. So the business starts to perform super well. You've, you've made this like pretty bold uh, communications move. You have all of 7th Avenue watching you now. Some of them um, whose feathers are ruffled. The retailers are interested because people are talking about your right. brand. Um, but again, you run into some challenges, right? Um, yes. as, as every journey has challenges. And, you know, um, Mr. Morjani has his own financial problems. Yeah, exactly. How, how, did, how did that happen? And what was the impact on your business? Well, Mr. Morjani came to me one day and he said, look, I've got the license for Coca-Cola clothes. And I said, Coca-Cola clothes? Yeah. I mean, what do you... What do you Red T-shirts. I mean, what are you talking? He said, "No, no, no. I mean, I, you know, Coca-Cola clothes. It's the biggest name in the world. We could do a lot with it." And his glory event built business was slowing down, and my business was tiny, but starting to grow. He said, "I need you to design it for me." So I said, "Oh, oh what am I going to do? I don't even have enough to design enough time in the day to to do my own." But it was paying him back for all he had done for me. Exactly. So I, I did. I designed it. And I decided to design it the way I would design cool casual sportswear, but put the Coca-Cola label on it. And it exploded. It took off. It was a $250 million business in 18 months. Wow. It was, it was enormous. But like any quick trend, it hit the wall and started falling down. So he was running into financial problems from the Gloria Vanderbilt fall off and, and the uh, Coca-Cola downfall while still funding my business. So basically I had to find new financing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I went to Hong Kong, I, I went to banks and I went to Wall Street, I talked to everybody. No, 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 we don't finance fashion brands, too, too risky. Risk. Yeah. I, I mean, I, Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, everyone. I mean, they, took meetings, but no. So I had to make a trip to Hong Kong to go to the factories to see how I could possibly get my merchandise to ship to the stores. And I walked into South Ocean Knitwear Company and I met a man by the name of Silas Chow. Mm -hmm. Now, Silas Chow had been shopping at my store on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills and bought clothes for himself and he said, I like your clothes. And I said, great, uh, I, need some, I need some help financially because I don't have the money to pay for the sweaters I'm making with you and I have orders from the stores. And I'm 
trying to find a, a partner or financing and I'm having a difficult time. And he said, let's go partners. I go partners with you. And I said- On the spot. On the spot. So I said, well, I have a partner now, Mirjani, whose mm -hmm. name is Mirjani, and we have to probably buy him out. So he said, put him on the phone. Put him on the phone. And uh, we bought Mirjani out. Silas became my backer. Joel Horowitz became the CEO and partner. And Lawrence Stroll, who is Silas's partner, became the other partner. So it was four of us. But Silas said, you have to put your name into the company. You are no longer going to own your name entirely. I said, what? wait, wait, my name is my only asset. That's right. all I have. Yeah. And I've worked really hard in building my name. And he said, look, do you want to be a small part of an elephant or a large part of a pea? And I said, maybe small part of a, a, an elephant. He said, so put your name in. We're going to invest. We have a great team in place, and we're going to grow the business. The rest is history. Right. We built it from 25 million to 50 million to 100 million to 500 million to a billion to two billion, and it just, it's still growing today. But without having Silas Chow, Lawrence Stroll, and Joel Horowitz, that wouldn't have happened. Right. They were a great team, and we're still very close today. We all had an amazing journey together, and we were fortunate enough to expand into Europe early, find a guy by the name of Fred Gearing, mm -hmm. who was a superstar CEO. Mm -hmm. And although we had some bumps of, as a result of overdistribution and too many logos, and you know, we well, let's talk about that for a minute because that's that's actually one of the things I want to talk about because I feel like it's really topical at the moment. Yeah. I mean, one of the things you're reading now about, you know, other American fashion businesses that are, you know, publicly traded businesses, your business eventually went public in yes. 1992, I believe, yeah. you know, and as soon as a business goes public, there's pressure for it to That's grow. And, you know, at some point you tap into uh, this, you know, fast growing urban trend of oversized clothes. And you know, the business is growing and growing and growing, but then again, like things can change very quickly in fashion. I mean, this is why so many investors are, you know, reticent or scared of the fashion industry because you risk. Know, trends come in and trends go out. That's right. Um, can you talk about, you know, the risks and of overexposure, especially in the context sure. of, of businesses that are facing that today? Yeah. You know, what, what happened first of all, and what did you learn from that? Well, I started the company with a collection designed for myself. And I was over my hippie stage. No more long hair. No more long hair, no more bell bottoms. But I went back to my preppy roots because mm -hmm. I, I dressed, you know, we were pretty preppy growing up. But I hated the preppy clothes because they were boring. The fit was terrible. They were stiff. People who wore preppy clothes were not cool. So I decided to redesign all the classics. I took the button-down shirt, the chino pant, the polo shirt, all these things, and redesigned everything to suit my needs, which at the time were very casual. But I wanted them to be cool and meaningful and have thought in the design. So I added detail. 
I washed them, I made them oversized, I created a couple of logos. I really redesigned the classics that I thought would be relevant for young people of, of the time. So they were preppy classics and they really took off. But then in the early 90s, all of the street kids started wearing my clothes and I'd done these athletic inspired jerseys with big logos because I wanted to become more sporty. So I took authentic hockey jerseys, football jerseys, basketball jerseys and did patches and logos and really big bold statements and they sold like crazy. And Snoop Dogg went on Saturday Night Live wearing one of them and the next Monday morning they sold out of the stores. And so all of a sudden this thing started multiplying like crazy and we couldn't supply the demand. We were, we were always selling out and we did the carpenter pants and we did uh, lots of red, white and blue t-shirts and sweatshirts and sweaters and it was like the trend of the early 90s for young people all over. And really worn by a lot of hip hop kids, street kids, skaters, that urban crowd. Yeah, the, the, the urban crowd. And we started designing into it and chasing the trend ourselves. And I think that was a big mistake because trends come and go, we know that. And they become almost addictive if you're selling a lot of certain merchandise because you, you don't want to stop. Mm -hmm. But I think that it was a great lesson mm -hmm. and getting back to our preppy roots was, a, was an incredible thing because it put us back to the DNA of the brand and pushed us forward again. How much, how much of that pressure to grow do you think came from being public? 100% because yeah. every quarter we had to show the markets that we were growing. and. We had such phenomenal growth in the beginning, they expected that growth to continue. And the minute it didn't continue, they were off the brand. And I think that's happening to maybe someone else right, right yeah. now. Yeah, no, I mean, that's happening to business, you know, Coach and Michael Kors yeah. and other businesses are facing the same thing. Yes. Is you go really quickly for several years and then all of a sudden, you know, you're everywhere and all of a sudden people don't, aren't as interested in you anymore. So what you did was, you, know, you retrenched everything. That's right. You pulled everything back. So talk about that, that part of the story and, and why that was the right strategy. Okay. Uh, early on, Silas and Lawrence said, Let, let's plant some seeds in Europe. Mm -hmm. So we opened a store in London and we hired Fred Gearing, who had worked with Silas and Lawrence early on, I mean earlier than that, when they were the Polo Ralph Lauren European licensees. And Fred took over the Tommy Hilfiger brand and he grew it steadily with a positioning, a, a premium positioning, was very thoughtful in where he opened stores, was very thoughtful in the distribution. So we had this incredible philosophy and strategy going on in Europe with great slow growth and one day when we were in a dilemma of trying to figure out what the hell to do with the brand because the stores were marking it down. In the it wasn't States. cool anymore. Yeah. 
Abercrombie had come around. Polo's business was, was taking a lot of our business mm -hmm. back. Uh, the Gap was hot, Banana was hot, and all of a sudden the, the landscape was changing. So we said, what do we, what do we do? And Fred said, well, why don't you look at what I'm doing in Europe? What he was doing in Europe was he was celebrating the DNA of the brand, which was preppy, all-American, premium sportswear. So we decided to take a page out of that book and apply it to the U.S. business. Interesting that you'd have to take the lessons from Europe and apply yeah. them to America. But, it, you know, it really did seem to, you know, help reposition the it whole did. brand. It did. Yeah. There came a certain point, though, when, you know, the business was still public and then, again, you decided to take it private. Right. I feel like this is a whole business case in like every type of structure of potential structure you can have for a company. So you went from being a small private company that went public, yeah. faced some problems, brought it back in, started expanding in Europe, and then you know took the business private with Apex. Yeah, and, that's true. And that was a really critical part of the um, story because it, it removed some of this public market pressure. That's right. And it was part of the the kind of European story as well. Let's let's fast forward to today now because mm -hmm. you know the you know the business is in a, a very different position today. Yeah. It's now doing over you know six billion dollars in retail sales and at, at value at retail. Mm -hmm. um, you have multiple collections at different tiers, and you are now you know in a way kind of you know not actively involved with the business every single day, but you're playing a very directional role to help this entire global business work. How has your role in the business changed from the beginning when you were the scrappy entrepreneur to, to, the, to the position you're in today? Well, we have incredible teams in the world. We have great leadership and we have a very, I would say, solid structure. So it allows me to be a visionary and give direction to the brand from a creative standpoint the clothes, the collections, the fashion shows, the advertising, the marketing, the collaborations, the stores, the design of the stores, the cool factor. And I mean, I couldn't be happier because it allows me the time to do this. Whereas before I was juggling a lot, but now that we have PVH as a partner and mm -hmm. or as the, the owner and they handle really the, the business end of the business. It allows me to do, I think, what I'm probably best at anyway. And in terms of the way you think about your, the business as it goes forward, I mean, you've hit this 30-year milestone. That's you know, right. What do, you, what do you hope for? <laughs> what do as, I hope? As you, as you think about the business going forward, I mean, it now seems like it's in a really solid place after lots of twists and turns yeah. and ups and downs and different partners and different market positioning. Uh, wh what's, what's, your, what's your vision now as the visionary? Well, first of all, I, I, I'm always afraid of becoming too complacent. And I'm always talking to our people about never being satisfied with today. Looking ahead and looking at how we could always evolve and become better at everything we do. And never patting ourselves on the back saying, oh, we're, we're great. I like to say, 
there are a lot of great people around, a lot of competition. There's a lot of competition. We have to always strive to work harder to be better. And as a perfectionist, I find a lot of fault with a lot of things. But, you know, those are the details that always need fine tuning. But going forward, I would like to think that we would continue to grow and evolve as a, life, a global lifestyle brand with premium positioning, which I think is a sweet spot mm-hmm. in, in the world of positioning, expand our women's business, our women's accessory business, continue to elevate the brand, continue to be innovative in advertising and marketing, uh, embrace social media and digital as we have, Mm -hmm. continue to surprise the consumer with new ideas, but always back it up with the best product you can possibly offer Mm -hmm. at the, the best value. One last question for you, Tommy, which is really, I mean, you've talked about your career as being kind of the equivalent of a master's in business. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I talk to a lot of young designers and creatives about is understanding that fashion Mm -hmm. is a business. Yeah. Do you, do you think fashion designers need to understand business? And and if so, why? If if not, why not? I mean, how important is that business side? I think it's important for designers to understand the business end of the business as much as possible because without having that understanding, they will never understand the necessity of the business being healthy mm-hmm. because you, you have to make clothes that actually sell and that become profitable and that become wearable. Otherwise, why be in the business? I mean, we're not doing school projects. We're making clothes that we want people to wear. And at the same time, in order to continue to do all the things we do, the fashion shows, the advertising, the showrooms, the stores, and doing all of the fun things, it takes a lot of funding. And it takes a lot of profit. So you need money to sustain your creativity. We do. Thank you for listening to Inside Fashion on the Business of Fashion. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and subscribe today. And to watch these interviews, visit the Business of Fashion on YouTube. And don't forget to visit businessoffashion.com to learn more about BOF and everything that we do.